harley at gmail.com. The Times 1001, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts, Alan Sprague, and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning, good morning. It's a really good morning. It's almost uh, above freezing for after a long time. It's time for Boat Talk here on <clears throat> here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor. And all around this great wet world at WERU.org. Boat Talk is a call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your fluky anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, and it's going to be extra fluky today because we have some people here to, to talk about whales. and uh, A double oh. pun. Good one. Excellent. I thought about it beforehand. Yep. Excellent. So, yes, um, you've got a few current things to talk about before we go into the main topic. The, uh, and the flukes come back to the anchor and, and then to whales. We were starting to explain the whale people. Yeah, that's the, that's the right way. Yeah, and we have guests here this morning. <laughs> yes, uh, Zachary um, Cliver and Jeff Dobbs are both here today. We're going to be talking about an interesting project that they're going to, they, they are working on I'm looking forward to see. But um, uh, I want me to start with the little odd things first. Yeah, Zach okay. is the uh, Bar Harbor uh, Whale Watch Company, and Jeff Dobbs is a uh, well-known local filmmaker. Yep. Jeff Dobbs. Uh, happy to have him here, and the policy is around boat talk. Uh, while we're doing this, that, and the other, they're as good as co-hosts, and, and uh, if the phone rings, we'll answer it. Yep, if the phone rings, um, you can be calling it at one Eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. We've got a uh, ongoing discussion going on about talk about uh, climate change, and we're going to uh, continue that today. But also on the uh, front page of today's uh, Bangor Daily News, uh, wicked sad story: body identified as missing clamor in uh, Tenants Harbor, and this fella uh, was out clamming in the blizzard. And he went by boat. He's a uh, extra hard working fella, and uh, not all clamors go by boat. That's a um, uh, like say uh, step it gives up, you a lot better access. Step up, <laughs> step up the ladder. Uh, more investment in the fishery than uh, approaching it by the uh, butt. He was not in his regular spot uh, during that blizzard, and apparently uh, uh, come to a bad end. Um, couldn't find him. And the cove was all iced up. All the boys got together and, and with their boats come up and ice broke in the cove. That allowed the uh, 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 government people to put a side scan, side scan sonar down, and, and they finally found him. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Put, breaking up the ice is not as easy as it sounds either. No, right? not at Especially all. Especially in a cove, you've got to worry about hitting rocks. Yeah. Oh boy. Not at all. And again, those That's boys uh, putting their boats... Uh, to use, but also at risk, and uh, but they got to find their friend there well, who was out clamming in the blizzard. Another another uh, sign of how Mainers stick together, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, that blizzard 
produce some um, uh, wicked high tides. Oh, yeah, they have been. That's right. Yeah, that yeah. blizzard uh, produced uh, uh, a special storm surge that come on what is uh, called in Boston the wicked moon uh, tide, okay? It come on top of the uh, full moon uh, big tide and produced a six-foot storm surge in Boston, termed the highest tide ever, and um, storm of the century, going to keep coming. But yeah, I'm going to say the highest tide ever so far. Yeah, yeah. and uh, that's the problem with this uh, new records we're having is the uh, uh, thing is going to keep coming. They say that there was a uh, three-foot storm surge on a um, uh, two-foot extra tide, and, uh, you know, the fact that the uh, whole thing's about a foot deeper than it was uh, 100 years ago to start with. And you've got areas of Boston flooding that have never flooded before. you got water coming down the subways and the conduits and, and all kinds of uh, tunnels and uh, spaces where it doesn't belong. This also brought up the fact that they are studying a seawall around Boston. University of Massachusetts looking into it right now. They're going to have the report out in a month or two. We seem to be obsessed with walls. Well, (laughs) you know, let's think about it for a second. The seawall would stretch from, I'm a little fuzzy on my Boston um, uh, geography, but it would stretch from Hull to Winthrop. Okay. It would have uh, the biggest marine gate in the world, and it would have to be 1,500 feet wide for some reason. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it would cost probably on the order of the uh, fabled border wall that we're talking about. They're also proposing such a thing for New York City. Yep. Uh, just for example, uh, we haven't even gone anywhere else yet. Um, let's think about the wall around New York or Boston. What happens in Brooklyn and New Jersey? What happens outside of Hull and Winthrop? Um, you can't just wall off one side and push the water someplace else. That's not uh, really advanced thinking at this point. Um, and the fact that it's going to take uh, tens of billions of dollars. Uh, it seems to me that even if you build a wall around the city, you got subway tunnels and all kinds of other tunnels coming into the city from v- various outlying areas are going to be... Reverse drains. Well, and again, we can't have that. And the argument is not how much it costs, how much will how much cost will it avoid is the uh, uh, argument <laughs> being used of that expensive real estate. And New York and Boston, just for two examples, can't be replaced. Also, if you zoom out on the map of flooding, uh, recent flooding in New York and Boston, it matches pretty much the the fill areas of New York and Boston, both both heavily, heavily filled in since colonial times. And those are the areas that tend to seem to have problems, surprisingly enough. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Close to the water. Uh, more to come. Um, they also say in that uh, last uh, uh, storm there, we had flooding uh, that threatens Superfund sites, including a couple in Maine. The Portsmouth Naval Shipyard had flooding issues. They have 25 acres of uh, tidal flats they filled with... Uh, since World War II with everything from uh, chromium, cadmium, asbestos, lead, anything else you can think of. Um, and those are flooding. Also, the Callahan Mine in Brooksville is the other uh, waterfront super fun site, but uh, it's already been flooded and not, not, I guess, a threat. So. Yeah, that drains down to the, to the salt ponds and then eventually into the water right there, too. But literally more of this coming. And, um, you know... Uh, Best of luck in the future, folks. Uh, again, uh, uh, 
Another headline on the front page of the Bangor Daily News today. Uh, front page right here, upside down. 2017, most costly U.S. disaster year. And um, we spent $306 billion this year on disasters. There were 16 storms that cost more than a billion dollars. And if you go down to Puerto Rico, they had a guy on TV this morning. He's still got no power and no water. And his door was, he's got no door to his house, but it was hanging sideways in the frame. And that bothered me that nobody would... <laughs> We hinge the damn thing. Yeah, so. it's right there. Just saying. Yeah. Um, again, uh, still coming. So um, we've been making the point on Boat Talk uh, recently that the uh, global warming thing um, is uh, believable enough from my point of view. But the thing that really hit me in the head just recently was a couple books I read, The Water Will Come and No by Naomi Klein. No is not enough in the age of Donald Trump is Naomi Klein's new book. Mm -hmm. She has a uh, whole chapter on global warming, read uh, quite extensively from it last month and got a fair reaction. But the thing that, again, what me upside the head is um, literally the idea that this uh, carbon dioxide that we put up in the air – is not coming back down. It's on the order of, of a problem of nuclear waste. One reason why we can't have nuclear uh, power plants, apparently, besides the danger, is you can't get rid of the, the waste of the fuel. And the problem is that the carbon dioxide doesn't fall out of the sky. If we stop putting it up there tomorrow, the warming will continue. And it's just a matter of how much. And uh, by all accounts, the... Uh, forecasts are not adequate to what's happening at the present time. Uh, reality is exceeding the forecasts. And <laughs> for instance, the Paris climate change people are hoping to limit uh, two degrees of warming. Read a book just recently, two degrees, 100 years, easy. Hey, 76 instead of 74. It's not a hard day. But it doesn't happen that way. It happens in, in uh, starts and fits of big storms and, and uh, great disruptions and uh, does not proceed uh, smoothly to that. And there are some people that are now uh, Rutgers University and Potsdam Institute in Germany have a study out that says past one and a half degrees, you've got no more marshes and reefs, just for instance. And uh, basically nothing good happens after that. There will be so much uh, habitat and species loss that anything after a, a degree and a half, they say the bets are off. Other people say four, we might be lucky. It could be ten. We don't know. And again, uh, history will possibly be pretty kind looking backwards that we were so confused. Well, I have something uh, completely different and not so disastrous, but it's interesting. It's uh, Blackbeard, member of the pirate Blackbeard. His flagship was named Queen Anne's Revenge. I always thought that was a great name. There is a group now called Queen Anne's Revenge Project, which could be a little bit scary if you think about it the wrong way. But no, they're uh, trying to, or they are um, recovering all kinds of artifacts from the from the flagship that ran aground in North Carolina in 1718. And uh, part of the discoveries is they pulled a wooden plug that was sealing a, a cannon chamber. And after they pulled the plug, they found some wadding that was really black and yucky. But they washed it out and uh, cleaned it up. And then as they cleaned it up, they could see some actual text on this paper. Um, 
and they need realized that they needed to get the paper dry within 48 hours or else it would just fall apart. So they preserved it as best they could and then found these um, 16 tiny pieces of paper and laid them out and found certain words on one of them. One of them is the word Hilo, H-I-L-O, which I thought was Hawaii, but actually there's a town in Peru named Hilo. And uh, looked up books that had the word Hilo in it, which were pretty few. that were printed before 1718. Finally found a book that is called the A Voyage to the South Sea Around the World. And the the book is actually uh, written by a man named Edward Cook, who was aboard the Duchess, which is one of two ships in a British privateering voyage against the Spanish. And during that voyage, they rescued a, mar- a marooned sailor named Alexander Skirkfrom. In a, he was on an uninhabited island in the South Pacific, and the account is a, thought to be the inspiration for fictional Robinson Crusoe. So there you go. That's what pirates do when they're not plundering. They're reading sea stories. They get around. <laughs> uh, I guess you could say that for pirates. Uh, I've been never a fan of the romance of pirates, being a professional sailor. I'm what's known as prey, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and again, I've never seen them as romantic We, have, we have a phone call, so we'll go right to that. We have a phone call from Tom. Good morning, Tom. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. I was just going to talk about what Mike said. Um, uh, one of the uh, things that you don't hear mentioned very much is that uh, – Scientists who have been involved in um, ice core sampling in the Arctic and Antarctic have been able to trace back the last 8,000, you know, 800,000 years. And basically it says in those ice cores that temperature and carbon rise uh, together um, uh, and that they can be measured and that we have had eight other ice ages and that they all had the, the same precipitous rise in um, in temperature and carbon, and that uh, while they talk about this being the Anthropocene age because this is a man-made environmental problem, it occurred it has occurred eight other times. So we don't know what those eight other times were, but we do know that it. It enters into the discussion of, of what is happening with global warming because if it's happened before, then and it happens on a hundred thousand year intervals, then well, it's not necessarily just man made. You know, it's like uh, it turns out that the demineralization of the of the Earth's surface uh, creates a carbon um, a kind of. Uh, it, it, the, the forests uh, die as a result of not being able to uh, remineralize, remineralize. So I add that to the discussion because while we might like to think that we are the sole actuator of this envir- environmental problem, we may not be. But I will tell you that we are above the levels of temperature and carbon than have ever been seen before. So, you know, I, I don't know if that's interesting to you or not. <laughs> oh, I uh, totally uh, in support as an ecologist, uh, you know, uh, the complexity, the web of it all. Uh, simple 
uh, causes, uh, you know, pretty much uh, too simple to be real. Yeah. I, well, I heard this lecture at in Maine from uh, uh, a professor who is retired uh, who did some of that drilling, and he, he would not say, like, it turns out that you have uh, global warming, global warming, global warming, and then uh, instantaneous ice age. Uh, and he said, and he would not say what instant, instantaneous means because it has to do with, you know, uh, geologic time. But so it could be like instantaneous as in the way it's been pictured in some movies or it could be like 100 years. But the point is. This is a, a cycle, and it, it almost harkens back to Vedic knowledge of, of these ages that cause the proliferation of population and then the crash of population. So it's a lot to take in. Uh, my point is I heard this at the Humboldt uh, Institute uh, from a lecturer who is a retired uh, uh, what glacial geologist? I don't know, and uh, and he he just said it's not good news. <laughs> that was the way he ended it. That's I thought pretty, you'd find that interesting. That's pretty much the lowdown there, Tom. Hey, thanks for calling this thanks, morning, Tom. Yeah, and again, can happen uh, fast is a relative term in geological terms. Whether it's uh, too many volcanoes going off for thousands of years or an asteroid hitting the planet all of a sudden you, you, know? you are right um and i have been i have done some reading on the uh reading of the uh, ice layers and he's writing you can go way back in time the big difference is the rate of change um is just astronomically quicker right now than it has been in any other of the other eight ice age events well here's the idea that i want to add to the boat talk climate change discussion this month uh Again, that carbon dioxide is up there, and it's not coming down, okay? The other thing that's up there and is not coming down is the misinformation that's been put out on an ongoing basis for a long time. Um, and, in fact, you can buy scientists. I, too, believe that nicotine is not addictive, you know? <laughs> and uh, you can get people to stand up and say that if you want. And uh, from Naomi Klein's book, uh, No is Not Enough in the Age of Donald Trump, that we read from last week, uh, last month, the climate clock strikes midnight. We edited this part out last month. Um, ExxonMobil has now been documented, knew about climate change as far back as the 70s. According to groundbreaking, groundbreaking investigation by Inside Climate News, been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, Exxon did its own cutting-edge empirical research, taking carbon dioxide samples off its oil tankers and building state-of-the-art climate models that predicted the coming changes, such as sea level rise. It also received warnings, warnings from its own scientists, including James Black, who was categorical in his reports to his employer about the, quote, general scientific agreement that most likely manner in which mankind is influencing the global climate is through carbon dioxide release and the burning of fossil fuels, unquote. He also wrote that man, quote, has a time window of five to ten years before the need for hard decisions regarding changes in energy strategies might become critical. That was 1978. <laughs> and uh, Oh, it's gotten a lot better since then, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it has. And also in the uh, Bangor Daily News today in the editorial section is a lovely um, editorial talking about how 
if you want to pay attention to the government view on climate change, uh, look at what the military is thinking. They can't fool themselves as easily as some other people, apparently, as well as insurance companies. Got to be slightly realistic about it. And, um, you know, the the uh, military is uh, – oh, I wrote it down somewhere, but I lost it here. Anyway, they are uh, – the Defense Department um, – Climate change can act as a threat multiplier and prevent significant security challenges. It can accelerate the instability and conflict and uh, seen as a uh, – oh, and the new uh, national uh, strategic strategy document that just came out has no mention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, politically so. so. And again, um, you know, the fact that we were so confused will be forgiven in the history books, I think, because, uh, you know, this is damn confusing now, isn't it? And, uh, you know, best of luck. Hmm. Well, um, let's go right to Wales and start off there, seeing how we were started out pretty fluky. And um, talk about the, the, we seem to know for the news, the, what was it, 16 or 18 right whales that were killed last year. And uh, one of the things I, I'll say right in the beginning is that one one reason it's easy to tell that is because when they're dead, right whales float, and a lot of other whales that might be struck uh, sink. So we can't really say that uh, that's all that's been killed. But it was a bad year for whales. As far as I'm concerned, we're on the same subject. The uh, Gulf of Maine is a we unique are. body of water, and it's changing fast. And uh, part of the rate of its change is because of the uniqueness of its uh, shape, basically. It looks on the map like a big, shallow uh, bite that is open to the ocean. But, in fact, if you look uh, underwater, it's a big pitcher. And it has a funnel spout that leads out between, uh, it's called the Great South Channel, leads out between Nova Scotia and uh, George's Bank. And, in fact, uh, it's a big bowl that is hard to get into. Uh, you know, in some ways. So it's very special. And again, changing fast. Also full of whales. Lucky enough. Yeah. yeah. So, Zach, um, can you expand on the on the bad year for whales? Yeah, sure. And I, and I do agree with you both that uh, it is re- related to climate change. Oh, yeah. um, if you look back at um, <clears throat> uh, 25 years of research that was being conducted by the New England Aquarium and and lots of different organizations. Uh, For all that time, 50 to 75 percent of the total number of individual right whales would be photographed between the Bay of Funday, an area off Nova Scotia called Roseway Basin, and Florida. Since 2010, uh, that number has dropped uh, down tremendously now that the, the right whales are not not in those areas uh, and uh, um, the majority of them are showing up in Cape Cod in the spring mm. uh, around Cape Cod and Nantucket uh, and a lot of them uh, are moving uh, up into the Gulf of St. Lawrence and there's a lot of thought that this is related to bigger oceanographic processes taken, taking place in the ocean uh, that have to do with climate change, El Nino, uh, 
the, the movement of the Gulf Stream and how that impacts copepods, uh, the prey that they feed on. Uh, these are things that, that drive the right whale. Food is most critical. Uh, so uh, it's very related. And, and here's another thing about the climate uh, discussion that I think is, is really important uh, that gets ignored too much, and that is the twin sister of, of warming and climate uh, change is, with fossil fuels, uh, ocean acidification. Right. I mean, that that in alone is a reason to reduce fossil fuel use. Uh, we know that um, the oceans are becoming more acidic. This isn't this isn't open to discussion. It's not a theory no. in any way. I believe it's a, the, yeah. the simple answer to that is that with extra carbon dioxide, some of it gets absorbed into the water and becomes carbonic acid. Ex- exactly. Yes. And so, with more carbon dioxide, you get more carbon. Bad for people with carbonate acid. shells, apparently, which is uh, a lot of stuff in the ocean. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and there, you know, there's task force in Washington and uh, Maine. In recent years, of course, has put a big emphasis on this issue and has a task force uh, that is working on this. Maryland, uh, because this affects shellfish uh, significantly, it reduces their ability to produce uh, calcium shells, and then whole populations of oysters and mussels and clams have died. Uh, but it also f- affects the very basis of the food, food chain. In places in the world, we've seen big die-offs of phytoplankton. Uh, coral reefs are very susceptible to this, and that's part of, along with warming, the loss, uh, which is somewhere around 50% of the world's coral reefs. So this is all, it's all connected. Mm-hmm. And uh, so getting back to to the discussion of uh, what happened this year, this was, this was an unprecedented year for loss with right whales. In, in past years, the average in the last 20 years has been 3.9 right whales killed uh, from human causes that we're aware of mm-hmm. on average. Um, this year it was 17. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Human causes. Yes. And that's just... That's well, just what, what, uh, what does that include? Ship strikes, entanglements, anything else? Well, uh, primarily when whales are, are studied for when they're brought ashore and necropsies are completed, uh, when, they're, when they're human-caused mortality, it's, uh, it's those two things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Whales um, have very good sonar. I'm thinking uh, in normal times they know where the ship is better than the ship knows where the whale is. Um, they get stressed and lose their abilities? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think what happens, um, you you have some whales that have the ability to use uh, sonar, and those are the tooth whales like the sperm whale, Mm -hmm. right? Um, All whales have tremendous hearing. Hearing is critical to them, and sound travels through water four to five times quicker than air. So uh, we know that uh, their hearing is incredible they could, they, and, and that they can communicate over thousands of miles through the ocean. The issue is ships are bigger. They're moving faster. Uh, 
And the design of the ship is such that the propellers are underneath the ship and behind it. So a lot of the noise is masked by the hull of the ship. The noise is sent out behind the ship, but directly in front of the ship in testing that's been done, there seems to be an acoustical window where there's no noise at all. And if right whales are feeding at the surface, which they do often, they skim feed with their mouths open, uh, they may not hear a ship coming, or if you've ever been underwater and tried to listen to sound, it's hard to tell where it's coming from, right. and they just don't know where the sound is. They're, this is such a recent thing in their evolutionary development that they mm-hmm. just don't get out of the way. And then the propeller has a suction function as well. Yes. It'll the draw ship- you in. Yes, there's been some modeling done of that by Amy Knowlton and other scientists uh, that study right whales, and they've shown that the ship can actually draw, like, draw the whale in once it it enters that vortices in the front where the energy is moving it and brings it right back to the propeller. Mm. Yeah. Zach, you're a Bar Harbor Whale Company. You've got a big old catamaran and a bunch of tourists you take out and look for whales on a regular basis. How was uh, not only business but sightings this year? Well, it was a really tough year for us as far as sightings go. Uh, Of course, we have uh, a lot of people that are coming to Bar Harbor, and they've based their vacations around doing activities, and a lot of them have already planned to come out with us and had made that decision months ahead to to go whale watching. And I think we benefit a lot from people that have a great trip with us and then go home and tell people in Ohio and Iowa and other places that you got to go here and do do that. So I think we we benefit from that this the, this year from past years of success. But this year our sighting success rate was was at a level that I've never seen in 28 years of guiding trips from Bar Harbor. Not in a good way. Not in a good way. No, normally our sightings are between 80 and 97 percent success rate. Pretty reliable. That's yeah. that's pretty special. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's good. It's like that's I call good. Cape Cod Bay. I call it whale soup. And again, yes. you you know, get through there three quarters of the time without seeing a whale, you can hardly do it. So, well, no, that that's our normal success yeah. rate. But um, this year, we were at thirty four percent success rate. Mm. Wow. Well, we won't advertise that. And <laughs> again, we're not saying that you don't know your business and and uh, where the whales might be. We're saying that the feed might be off, and so the whales have gone. Some whales are intensely portable. Yes, they are. Yeah, they can move great distances. They are planet portable. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, whales uh, literally uh, uh, move thousands of miles. And uh, was looking at the Allied Whale uh, website uh, just recently from the College of the Atlantic, and they're making a point. They just uh, got a photograph of a whale that they hadn't seen for like uh, 25, 30 years. Yeah, that's right. And thousands of miles away. Yes, you know, time and space; those things get around. Yeah, they really do. They can they can make big adjustments where they they uh, are t- normally going between the Gulf of Maine and the Caribbean, and then uh, they change and they go to a different to a different area, and we don't see them for years. In fact, uh, with the right whales, for example, after seven years, if a whale isn't seen, it is put in the category of being deceased, and. They also have a category for whales that are recited after seven years, and that's called resurrection. And so uh, <laughs> oh, too they, cool. they've had a lot of whales that come back 20 years later that are resurrected. Huh. <laughs> huh. Oh, fascinating stuff. Uh, did the phone ring there, and we must give the phone number. Yep. The phone number is one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. And I forgot to mention, too, if you'd like to call in or uh, email in, not go on the 
on the uh, air, but by email, just go to boattalk at gmail.com. And we have a phone call from Tom right now. Good morning, Tom. Welcome to Boat Talk. Well, you've heard too much from me already, but about what you're talking about, uh, there is this theory that I've been kind of putting in the back of my head that the Gulf of Maine may be a lot cleaner than the ocean right now. Uh, and it might have better feeding characteristics, which is almost in opposition to what we've been hearing for fishermen lately. But uh, that th- th- it may be that they're resorting to these places for the same reason that they're beaching in other places, that there's just the ocean is becoming a little too toxic. So just a, just my, my thoughts on that, why, why you saw more whales. Thanks, Tom. Where are you calling from this morning? Oh, I have a place in Stew Bend, but I also live in Richmond, Vermont. All right. Well, we forgive you for being inland from the uh, sea there, but you've made good sense so far. Call back any time, man. West coast of New England, that's all. Yeah. Oh. Enough, so the ocean will be back here. I, I almost had, I had to think about marrying a woman from Vermont, and there was no damn ocean. That was a big factor. <laughs> the Champlain, Champlain Sea was an inland sea uh, in geologic time, what? Hundred thousand, not even that, like twelve thousand years ago, something like that. And I'm scared of lake waves, so you know, you know what can I tell you? But anyway, <laughs> won't tell you any of the other things I'm scared of, Tom. Anyway, call back anytime. Appreciate it. Oh, uh, we are talking to uh, we're talking uh, climate, water, and whales this morning. We've got uh, Jack Clavin and uh, Jack. Zach. Uh, Zach. Zach, yep, and uh, Jeff Jeff Dobbs in here this morning, uh, both from the Baaba uh, area. And we have, a, we have a phone call, too, so let's go to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Yeah, hi, this is Frank in Lemoyne. Hey, I know Frank. all you guys. Um, do I have to start looking for real estate in Kansas? I'm just curious. Also, since we got Jeff and Zach there and other boat guys and Bar Harbor folks, let's talk about a local issue the Indian day, we don't want, we get it overdone on the cruise ship thing, in my mind, just, that's all, and you all can throw it out if you like to. Uh, Zach and uh, Jeff are pointing at each other and smirking <laughs> a little bit. Um, I think they have Bar Harbor attitudes about the whole thing in some way, shape, or form that I don't quite understand yet, but it's a good question. Um, did you see on, uh, just recently, the last snowstorm we had, um, they sent a cruise ship, the uh, Norwegian uh, something or other, uh, Norwegian breakaway from the Bahamas back to New York through a Force 10 gale with 4,000 people on it. And uh, it was described, there's a video up on the web, uh, people uh, were in great fear of their life. There was water not only everywhere on the decks, it was coming through the overheads, um, down stairways and in elevators. Um, You've got to imagine uh, things that fly around, and not only objects, but people. And the noise of a storm on a boat is uh, pretty special. It's very loud. It's like continued car crash, and um, you'll just be getting used to all the crashes, and then there'll be a bigger one, and that'll make your eyes go wide. And again, uh, check that on the web. for. I uh, I can hear Flatlanders screaming now. Yeah. You guys big fan of the uh, cruise ship industry in Bar Harbor? Is, uh, you put money in your pocket, you can sell them videos, Jeff. Come yeah, on. But, uh, <laughs> well, the, the video business is not the way it used to be, unfortunately. Uh, the, the, the Internet has changed that a lot, and uh, it's, it's made it into a, a tougher way to make a living. But I still do it. But uh, in a small answer to Frank's inquiry about cruise ships, I will answer the question in relationship to whales. 
Uh, like Zach and I, uh, Zach said earlier that we uh, we both were present up in Halifax for the the Right Whale Consortium and the the, the International uh, Marine Mammal uh, Convention and. The folks from the cruise ships were there, and they're very concerned about right whales and doing what they can to help the problem. And uh, as far as cruise ships in Bar Harbor, uh, as with anything, this there can be too much of a good thing, and the good citizens of Bar Harbor are working on it and doing, a, I believe, a good job. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, motion on buying the old uh, ferry pier, uh, for instance, cruise ship terminal, uh, yes or no, and uh, again, ongoing. I uh, also find it interesting in other places like uh, West Tremont and Northeast Harbor say, we don't want them here. Well, a funny story about, because uh, I've been very much involved in cruise ships, and uh, uh, our ex-town manager, Dana Reed, uh, became town manager of Tremont, and jokingly at, 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 in line at Hannaford's uh, a couple months ago, I said, well, you're going to do a cruise ship uh, prohibition in Tremont because if you've been to Tremont, there's no place, no place, for, no place for cruise ship. And yeah. the next thing I read in the in the Islander is they're, they're exploring a <laughs> prohibition on cruise ships, and yeah. I got a big kick out of that. But, yeah. We um, have a phone call, so let's go to that. Good morning, Roland calling to Boat Talk. Good morning, guys. What's up? Thanks for the talk this morning. I just thought it might be good to touch on the uh, recent lifting of the ban on offshore and gas drilling on the coastal waters of the United States. Yes. It yeah. impacts the, the whale population here. Yeah, as I call it, the uh, slick future for oil. Um, th- there is already some interest uh, from oil companies in drilling off the west coast of Florida, where it had been banned before, and there's a lot of people in Florida that are upset about that. So, Naomi uh, Wolf made a great point in her book, uh, No, Was uh, Not Enough in the Age of Trump, that... Um, uh, offshore drilling and high latitude drilling is expensive, and the price of oil is not uh, very high right now for such a thing. So it's limited by price. And there's a lot of drilling going on in other places yes, too, so uh, because of the fracking, especially. Mm-hmm. But let's imagine a nice little uh, global crisis, a uh, good little war that drives up the price of oil uh, to tremendous levels, and uh, there you go. Uh, they'll be out there in a heartbeat. Yeah. So um, price right now, we'll probably restrict it, but uh, there's no guarantee. Yep. We have another phone call, so let's go to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Oh, go ahead. You're on now. Go ahead. Welcome to Boat Talk. Oh, nope, I guess that line's empty now, too. All right. So we'll just carry on. one 625 9378 is the number, or you can email boattalk at gmail.com. When you run around the Gulf of Manzac, you see um, humpback whales, finbacks, uh, minkies, right whales, uh, porpoises, and dolphins, mostly. Correct, um, yes. Uh, and again, uh, what is the greatest, uh, uh, you see more humpbacks than anything else? Well, historically, we saw mostly finbacks over the course of our seasons, uh, especially in the spring when we would start in late May and in the fall in October. 
uh, we could always count on finback whales being there more consistently through the whole season. And uh, I went back just recently and looked at the year 2000 and then 2007, for example. In both those years, we had uh, over 150 sightings of finback whales on our trips, about 60 to 65 percent of the time that we saw whales. We also saw fin. We saw finbacks, and this year we only had uh, five sightings of finback whales mm. on, on our trips. And I think this gets back to this whole question of what what's driving them. What is this related to climate, or was there food elsewhere for them that they found and then didn't make it into the Gulf of Maine in in, in the abundance that they normally are? I think finback whales. In studies that have been done, uh, allied whale Sean Todd, for example, has shown looking at uh, uh, the lipid content of their bodies, they, they dart them and they can look at the fat and analyze it, determine what kind of prey they're eating. And he's found that, uh, with his students that they are often feeding further down the food chain below fish they're eating on plankton. So it, that may be related to krill abundance. If the krill aren't here, that may be keeping finback whales away. And uh, getting back to this whole issue, we, we really struggled this year to figure out what was going on. We did hear reports that you may have heard, too, from Canada that there was tremendous ice melt up in Greenland uh, this year. And the, it blocked off a lot of the harbors in Newfoundland and Labrador. They, they uh, couldn't get out in boats uh, in the early part of this season. And, of course, a lot of that water comes into the Gulf of Maine from the Labrador Current. Uh, we talked to Neil Pettigrew at the University of Maine, who runs a lot of the offshore buoys through Niracus, uh the Go Moose system. And he looked at some of that data, and he found that while um, the water temperature at the surface at least remained fairly normal, that the salinity was way down, which suggests more fresh water entering the Gulf of Maine. He also said that in the last few years, the eastern Maine Gulf uh, coastal current, rather, that runs uh, along the coast of Maine towards Massachusetts has sped up by over 20%. Hmm. <laughs> yep. Uh, let's see if we can stay on this ride. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it doesn't buck us off. And again, those whales are uh, portable over time and space. They are uh, pretty good canary uh, indicators uh, in their own way. And let's get right down to uh, biology. It's pretty simple. You got to eat, and you need to reproduce. Yes. And if those factors aren't favorable for you, you'll go somewhere else. Basically, um, is what it comes down to. Yes, I think they're highly adaptable, and they've lived in the oceans for millions of years. So they've been through ice ages and changes, and uh, they were they're going to go where they need to go. They're going they're going to shift their ranges and do what they need to do, and that's why this year may have been uh, so um, impactful on their population. They a lot so many of them again moved up into the St. Lawrence, and uh, there they didn't have. As they don't have as many regulations as we have in place here uh, in U.S. waters for reducing impact, uh, that, that they haven't made the changes that the fishermen have made to fishing gear. They haven't put in uh, as many uh, regulations around shipping to slow ships down to 10 knots or less, which we did uh, eight years ago. And uh, uh, so that left a lot of those whales incredibly vulnerable. And this year, in that area near the Gas Bay in Prince Edward Island, the the Canadian fishing uh, 
managers, the Department of Fisheries, uh, doubled the, the snow crab fishery quota. So there was a larger number of uh, traps in the water, and the season extended out uh, later into the summer. And so that may have been, you know, certainly was a, had a big impact on them. Yeah, those snow crab traps have lines up to the surface just like lobster traps, and that's what that's the whales get tangled in. Was in Nova Scotia last fall when they were fitting out for their herring season, and I was surprised by the volume of uh, boats and, and activity there. Uh, they have a tremendous herring fishery going in the south end of Nova Scotia there, and uh, we don't anymore, literally. Right, yes. Uh, you know, a lot of the herring catch this year was uh, in the uh, southern coast down near Portland, uh, and inshore, from what I understand, it was a lot of the fish were up close to the shore, uh, but we never saw any schools of herring offshore all season. We 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 have a, a fish finder that we use to look down on the mm. water column. I mean, we we are looking at the ocean every day, and we have tremendous range with our boats. These boats go thirty miles an hour. And we're going up to Jonesport. We're going out to Outer Fall, which is sixty-five miles to the to the south. Uh, we're going. Well, a lot of our successful trips, by the way, were going into. Canadian waters up to Graminan Banks, 55 miles away. That's where we saw a lot of fish and whales. A uh, little contradiction there about sh- slowing the ships down, but the whale watching boat gets to go real fast. Yeah, well, one of the things that I think uh, is important in that consideration is the, that um, our boats uh, have no propellers. Uh, so that water jet catamarans. Water jet yeah. catamarans. So we only have a very shallow draft. And, uh, of course, we have everybody out looking constantly when we're out there. So that that makes a big difference um, in terms of uh, us, of, you know, avoiding any kind of boat strikes. A uh, couple sea stories. You ever see any uh, uh, ocean sunfish? You see them much? We do see a lot of ocean sunfish. In fact, on one trip I was on this summer where we went to Grand Manan Banks, we saw about 20. I, they're like the weirdest wow. thing in the world, man. The, yeah. You yeah, come weird. upon an ocean sunfish, you'll see like a little uh, dorsal fin that's flopping back and forth uh, <laughs> very lang- very loosely and uh, limply on the surface there. If you'll get close to it and look at it, because one time we was headed to uh, Nova Scotia on autopilot, and uh, we run into one. And my buddy was uh, gorgeously, he was down on the toilet. And uh, when I grabbed the wheel and spun it around, spun him right off the toilet, it's one of the great moments of my life. <laughs> what the hell did you do? I says, I think I hit a whale. He says, what are you doing now? I says, going back to, you know, take a better run at him. And it was an ocean sunfish. And you get up close to him, it looks like a whale's head with no whale underneath it. And this little limpid fin, it's the weirdest thing. And they're a southern warmer. Uh, they don't like it up here. They get very loggy in the cold water. They drift up here. They're kind of drifters, filter-feeding drifters, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not clear if they can make it back out into warm water once they come in into the Gulf of Maine. Uh, we see them swimming along sometimes pretty quick if it's a warm day, you know, at the, and they're, they, they like to stay right up in the surface water. Uh, we... Uh, uh, see a lot of them after big storms like hurricanes when a lot of the warm water gets pushed up here. And uh, the, you may know a few years ago at Sand Beach there was one in Acadia National Park that came in close to Sand Beach and the lifeguard yelled shark and everyone ran out of the water. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Yeah. Mm. 
Uh, one of the funniest things you can do is go look at that YouTube video that was done on the, the guy from South Boston who was out <laughs> fishing, obviously hasn't been fishing a lot in his life, and he saw an ocean su- sunfish and just went bizarre. Freaked out. Huh? Yeah, freaked out. And, <laughs> They're uh, big. Uh, it, just look up baby whale ocean sunfish videos and you'll find it. It's hilarious. So, so speaking of videos, uh, you yeah. and Jeff are putting together a video that I really like to talk about. Yeah. Why don't you explain, Jeff? Is well, it, was it your idea originally? No. No. Uh, I just happened to uh, – Barbara Weller Watch Company, uh, among other things, is a, is a client of mine because I've been operating what many people have seen, tourists, thousands, millions, hopefully, uh, the Acadia Channel for, for over 37 years. And, and uh, one day we were down in Zach's office and Zach's boss came in and, and the news of uh, the gentleman – being killed up in, the, uh, you know, the oh, trying yeah. to save a right whale entanglement, yeah. and um, just uh, some feelings got together and said, "Why don't we? We need to do some something about telling people about the right whale on what's going on. I mean, the summer's bad, and didn't take more than that to get me excited about it. And um, and Zach is is a very knowledgeable individual, and and uh, and just you know thinking about. Well, my job is a filmmaker. That's my other job. And uh, telling stories about people about Maine, the beauty of Maine, and, and as far as I'm concerned, right whales are uh, citizens of Maine, too. <laughs> and so yeah. they fell right into my category. And uh, so we went through the process of going to Halifax, and, and I'm learning. It was a very dramatic experience for me to, to just sit there and listen to uh, very intense information about what, the hell's going on about whales in general and other marine mammals, but especially the right whale and the focus that 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 was brought to the right whale this summer, uh, and especially after uh, many organizations over over 40 years or more working so hard to help the right whale population reestablish itself, thought they did, and some some uh, something has happened and. There are many. There are many reasons for it. You've been talking about climate change, ship strikes, you know, entanglement. Uh, all, all this has been brought back into focus. So, uh, this idea of making it—it's a, a, another film. There've been other films made, and I'm not going to pretend there haven't. But uh, in this time around, we would like to tell the story of all the angles and what everybody has done and is trying to do and not only re-educating and educating more and more people uh, but to hopefully get people who are in the film to look at one another differently too because uh, one of the the big issues here is entanglements there's been a lot of success with ship strikes and and, and, uh, getting the ship to modify the shipping industry to move its shipping lanes and, and things like that, but uh, the fisheries is there's a lot more moving. There's literally, literally hundreds of thousands of fishermen, <laughs> and they all, as you know, they all have very different opinions. Mm. And to get them to uh, get them to understand what they can do. And also get the the experts to understand how to talk to them better uh, is one of the challenges that we're facing. 
and uh, uh, everybody's trying to do something. There's different extremes in the, in the world of the fisheries. There are fishermen that have that realize that and have been working very hard to do you know lineless to develop lineless fishing and and other types of breakaway ropes and things like that. And and there are still fishermen who you know even though they they work in the same areas that right whales and other whales and other mammals uh, live in they don't see them so they're, they're out of sight out of mind but uh, hopefully if we do it right we can tell a story that connects all this information and uh, and also make sure this gets out as far as it can go further than YouTube available to schools you name it and it's you know on and on and on and and uh, this is hopefully not going to be just one film. Zach's and my hope is that uh, if we can get one done, maybe we can create a reality series that keeps everybody informed on a at least a monthly basis about what's going on in the world of right whales and, and other marine mammals. Yeah, there are a lot of changes happening right now. So. Oh, yeah. Well, and, would, and tie it to lobsters and everything, clams and everything yep. else, uh, you know, yeah. it gets real personal with people. Oh, yeah, and um, and that's my job. Yeah. yeah. So, Zachary, um, is there a uh, breakdown of the percentage of, of the 17 right whales who were killed by entanglements and which ones are killed by strikes? Uh, yes. The, of the 12 that were found dead in the St. Lawrence, I believe four of them that, uh, in which necropsies were done on shore, which is, a, which is an enormous task to get a whale to shore if it's not on shore, you know, to bring it in. I from saw a my... picture of one laying in Hull's Cove. I was kind of surprised <laughs> by that. It looked pretty big well, on the beach. Yeah, we help with that. Our company often tows whales in for Allied Whale to conduct necropsies yeah. on. Uh, but so uh, four were ship strikes and three were entanglements. And then in the United States uh, of the five, uh, I think it's I think it's uh, two and two or something like that. Uh, you know, two entanglements, two, two uh, mm-hmm. ship strikes. But since um, since 2010, the, the, the it's it's flipped um, the historically. Um, Ship strikes were a much greater percentage of, of mortality, and now it's it's by far entanglements. Mm-hmm. And remember, there were also, while there were 12 that died in the St. Lawrence, there were five whales up there that were entangled at the same time that they never got to rescue. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Jeff, you're right then. We, we need some, some good education there. How far along is your project? Well, we're... Uh, we're in the we have we have a, a you know funding to get the thing going. Uh, Zach and I and a, and a woman by the name of Catherine Russell, who is the writer for the project, uh, we have been working on building a website, getting ready to do an Indiegogo fundraising uh, stint on the on Indiegogo and developing uh, relationships with all of the people that we need to work with NOAA, uh, New England Aquarium, uh, and on and on, Woods Hole, all these people getting stock footage. Uh, I, Zach knows most of these people because that's what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, as the Zach and I are co-producers, I'm the, I guess, I get to call myself the executive producer. And I need to know these people too because another thing about getting a lot of this footage is they got to trust the guy who's doing the film. 
And, uh, the, and the beauty of doing what I've done in Maine over the past 30 years or more is that half the fun of making a film is getting to meet all the people that you make the film with or about. And uh, so we've been going through that process and uh, connecting, and uh, uh, we're getting ready to launch hopefully this this month with a short video on Indiegogo, and, and hopefully we will raise all the money we need to get going. So we should have a, a contact information from you then. Do you want? But, yeah, it's a, well, it's under the auspices of a series of films yeah. that that Jeff is doing on on uh, the oceans called in, the Endangered Oceans uh, films. films. Yeah. And uh, this, we have a title for this first film. It's Saving Giants: mm-hmm. Survival of the North Atlantic Right Whale. And it'll be under the website Endangered Film. Endangered yes, sir. Ocean this film. hasn't gone online yet, but it's called it's www.endangeredoceanfilms.com. Say something about Acadia, Acadia uh, film thing, real quick, too. Always, you know, like I said, I run the Acadia channel. I'm always doing something about Acadia. Love Acadia. Uh, we just went through our 100th anniversary last year. Contact? And, uh, d- Jeff, www.jeffdobbs.com says it all. Very yeah. good. Well, we sailed through another hour, and uh, thanks to Zach Kleiber and Jeff Dobbs for coming on Boat Talk. And stay safe out there.